Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're here with Jeff Richter. It's been a long time. Uh, he'll come on in just a few minutes, but uh, I just want to say, hey, Mr. Campbell, how are you doing out hey, there in Canada? I am all right. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Almost recovered from whatever happened in the back of my throat and my chest that I picked up in Florida, but uh, at least it's not COVID. Yeah, well, considering you've already had it and been vaccinated, seems likely. And I and I'm about to come out of um, out of quarantine from from the trip too. So I I finally get set loose. No family for you. <laughs> no dog walking. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, get started with a little thing we call Better Know Framework. Awesome. <laughs> man what do you got so as you know i've been doing this blazer train series for a long time and in dotnet 6 preview 4 which came out in may mm -hmm. they added really good support for hot reload yeah. and the blazer story is nothing short of brilliant uh blazer server blazer uh web assembly doesn't matter the thing is that you have to uh, use the .NET Watch tool, command line tool. Right. And so, it's weird because you're not debugging when you use this. Hmm. It pulls up a browser and you see it. You make changes to either the markup or the code in Visual Studio. And when you save it, boom, it just loads up in the browser. So, you can literally do what you used to do with uh, HTML and JavaScript, which is just pull up a text editor, hit save, refresh the browser and everything, you know, you can there test it, is, it yeah. out. But it isn't debugging. So, the, with the debugging hot reload, the thing you can't quite do yet in Blazor is the markup. But the code, like if you have any classes that are pure right. code, like if you have code behind classes or whatever, you make a mm -hmm. change to those. As you're debugging, you press that fire button, uh, the hot reload button in Visual Studio, which has to be uh, the latest preview version of Visual Studio 2019 right. or higher. And then it, then it reloads and it, and it works. But you can't do the same thing with Blazor Markup yet. At least I couldn't yet. And I didn't see anybody doing well, any that demos. That kind of makes sense. They've been, they've been working on the .NET side first and foremost. Yes. And the markups are a different area. Yep. So, I get that. That's cool. But it is cool. And I did a Blazor train about it. And this is episode right. 1747. So, if you go to 1747.pwop.me, you'll see that Blazor train episode. And get this. It's only 10 minutes long. Like, it, nice. it's not. It's easy. It's fast. It's quick. And it's right awesome. It. I love yeah. it. That's awesome. So, who's talking to us today, Mr. Campbell? Grabbed a comment. I figured going back to 2008 for a comment. Probably not appropriate. 2008? Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably not, no. Just saying. Uh, so, I grabbed a comment off of show 1688, which is the one we did back in May of 2020, uh, as a, there was sort of NDC Porto that didn't happen, so everybody was remote. It was an all-online event. Right. And we did that panel discussion about APIs right. specifically, right? I know we're talking APIs today, and, and this comment seemed particularly relevant because this, comes, this comment comes from Nick, and it's from about a year ago, where he said, Arena was beating the rest is so bad drum for the entire episode, and I love it. And I would point out there are other comments from folks going, rest is not so bad. Uh, it's not really that bad, 
but teams continue to keep falling into traps of bad design and don't know until it's too late. Mm -hmm. Because REST doesn't have a forceful opinion, it's too easy to make bad decisions. The rising trend in this industry seems to be going towards heavily opinionated APIs so that people quit making those kinds of dumb decisions. Mm. And I think we've seen that in a lot of code in a lot of places, so frameworks and, and libraries and so forth, and APIs too. Opinionated makes sense. Like It's stop being all things to all people. Say, this is the way we do stuff. If you don't like it, use a different API. Right. Uh, it makes a lot more sense. And, it, and it, you do tend to not get into those nasty traps. So, uh, Nick, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Muse to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Muse to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, I'll send you a copy of Muse to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet and make sure it's highly opinionated. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sorry, man. That brings us to our guest. I think you said 2008 was the last time. 2008. Jeff was on. Oh. Episode 361. Wow. So a mere 1,400 episodes ago. Well, in his bio has changed. Let me read it to you. Jeff Richter is an Azure software architect and has authored several best-selling Windows and .NET programming books, as well as many MSDN magazine feature articles and columns. He's also a co-founder of Wintelect, a software consulting and training company where he's authored many videos available on Wintelect now. Welcome back after, geez, I don't even know how many years, but a whole bunch. Yes. Well, thank, thank you for having me. It's good to be back. So Too long. how we reconnected was uh, just some community people were having sort of an after hours chat and Jeff got invited and I got invited and you and I just totally started geeking out about old things that I remember you on .NET Rocks telling us about, uh, you were a contractor at Microsoft at that time. But you were working on Windows, the Windows base, mm -hmm. and how you would have these like switch statements for <laughs> if the application running is, let's say, Adobe After Effects or whatever it was, <laughs> I don't know what it was, then, you know, do this. And if the application is whatever, and I just thought that that just tickled my, tickled my funny bone. But you rightly said that, you know, if we, w w it's good that we have those things in there because it means we're taking care of our customers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Microsoft bends over backwards. You know, every time they, they want to add features to the operating system and some of those features might break compatibility. So they run a bunch of the old apps on the new system. And if they see that something is not working quite right, then they'll put like switch case statements in, like you said, hmm. um, they call them quirks in the operating system to make sure that the apps keep running so that there's no hindrance to customers adopting the new OS. It's really you awesome. You don't want a customer saying, I won't take this thing because my Adobe app doesn't work anymore or something. So, right. you know, it's it, a win-win for everybody, right? Yeah. And anything I can't imagine. Stops them, I mean, anything that would stop a sale of the new windows, they're going to fix. And I, well, sure. Right. <laughs> you know, we want to keep the customers happy. We want to keep Adobe happy. And of course, Microsoft wants to keep themselves happy too. So I can't imagine a scenario in which I would do that for, for my customers. Like if my user is blah, 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 do that. But however, if it meant, you know, keeping that customer happy and not screwing up everyone else, then I definitely would. It's different when you're an operating system, I think. Yeah. It, yeah, it definitely is, yes. So, we're here talking about APIs in Azure, and this is actually sp spawned from one of these conversations we were having. 
couple, a month ago or so. And, uh, your, what is your exact position? What do you exactly do with the APIs in Azure? Okay. So, um, I wear many hats in yeah. Azure. So one of the hats is I'm on the HTTP REST API review board or stewardship board, we call it now. Mm. So um, we are a stewardship board. We understand REST very well, and we create the guidelines for the entire Azure organization as to how any Azure service should be exposing its API. Hmm. So we make sure that things are item potent, for example. They support optimistic concurrency, um, you know, the, the, all those HTTP goodness things that go on there, versioning, uh, breaking changes for customers, compatibility, stuff like that. So whenever a service team is introducing new APIs, they bring those APIs to our board and we review them to make sure it's consistent with Azure's policies because we want Azure to look like a holistic platform to customers, right. not like this service was created by this company and this service created by this other company. Right? We want it to look like it's one company and there's some consistency across the board. So uh, that's a big part of what we do in coming up with guidelines that make these teams be successful. Another thing we focus very heavily on there is sustainability. We want the service to be sustainable for the service team, but also for customers. So the service should be able to evolve over time without breaking customers and without the service team having to do weird incantations in the code, like those quirks things we were talking about in Windows, really. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like that, right? Um, we'd like it to have a really good growth path that can live for maybe potentially decades. I mean, Azure Storage, uh, a team I was on for a few years, um, after I joined Microsoft full time, that team, you know, that, that service has been around for more than 15 years now or so. So, and we expect it to live for many more years to come. So that's a big part of what I do. So another thing that I do is I'm on the Azure Breaking Change Review Board. So we do want these teams to evolve and sometimes they want to make things better, but making it better might also break existing customers. So whenever a team wants to make a breaking change, they have to present it to the board. We review the change. We see how many people it would be would be affected, customers would be adversely affected by this change. We kind of judge how important is this change? Is there another way to accomplish the same task without breaking the customers? Um, if we do break the customers, can we just break them in a minimal way? Right. You know, not some dramatic way. Break the fewest customers, make us, you know, the smallest possible change you can. Yeah, or the least number of places in their code, right? So maybe right. we change the method that creates a resource, but all the methods that return the resource are exactly the same. Mm. Things mm -hmm. like that. So there's, it, it's, a, it's a long analysis um, that depends on many factors. Is the, is the API in private preview? Is it in public preview? Is it GA service? How long has it been in service? How many customers does it have? Mm. There's a lot of things we have to analyze. Uh, we also do retirements too. Sometimes, uh, you know, a service, the team can't support it anymore for whatever reason, and we have to retire certain things. Right. So um, I help create the policies around all of this, and I'm on the board to review these changes. And then we talk it over with the team, and we try to arrive at the best place possible for the customers. So this uh, affected us in a very specific way 
which was, um, you know, we, we have this, um, admin application for our podcasts and it's great because, uh, puts all the advertiser stuff and all the documents, the, the description, the title, you know, photos from the guests and sponsors and, uh, and also it's a place where we can collect files from everybody. So when we're done with this Zencaster interview, I'll take the MP3 files that each of you generated. I'll upload them to this admin tool. And what it does is it puts them out into Azure blob storage. And so sometimes these files, especially WAV files, right, can be 300, 400 megabytes a piece, you know? The MP3 files are smaller, obviously, but 300, let's say 350 megabytes. And so you need to do sort of a, um, a, a chunked deal. You need to upload it in chunks so that you can update a, a progress bar. So the user isn't sitting there while it says, you know, uploading to Azure for 10 minutes and you don't know what it's doing. And um, in version 11.2.3 of Microsoft Azure Storage Blob, we were able to do that. But in the current version 12, um, there, there isn't, doesn't seem to be any mechanism for that. And, uh, and I wouldn't necessarily call it a breaking change, but it's sort of the removal of a feature or at least the rewriting of how you do that. So I remember talking to you about this, but you had a really good answer for it. Yeah. Um, well, we would consider that a breaking change, definitely. Uh, certainly removing a feature is a breaking change. But even if you have to modify your code to use the existing feature, that's also considered a breaking change. Okay. Sure. Um, but um, so before I answer your question or talk about this progress reporting, mm. I feel like I should say one other part of my job is that I'm on the Azure SDK team where I help design the way these client libraries work. Mm -hmm. This Azure SDK team is about two and a half years old now. And Scott Guthrie caused the team to be formed. And we decided that we were going to re-architect all the SDKs for all the Azure services so that they were consistent across the board. Mm. And we knew that that was going to force breaking changes to come into play. Okay. And Scott agreed that we'll do this, and then we hope that this new architecture will be sustainable for years and years and years to come. So, um, so I'm I'm largely the architect with some other people, of course, on the design of these new SDKs. Mm. So, for progress reporting, the design that we have for doing that progress reporting of when you're talking about uploading blobs into blob storage or files, um, you pass the upload API a stream and it's going to read from the stream as it does the upload. So the right thing to do, we believe, yep. is that you wrap that stream with a progress reporting stream. And it's always been our goal to have a progress reporting stream class in the SDK, but I don't think we've created it yet. It depends on what language SDK you're looking at. Um, but it would be fairly trivial for someone like yourself to go and create a progress reporting stream. It's maybe 10, 15 lines of code right. to do so. And then just use the decorator pattern, you know, common in object-oriented languages, to decorate your upload stream with the progress reporting stream. And then as our API is reading those bytes from the stream, your progress reporting stream will get callbacks in it, and then you can update progress reporting. Yeah. Yeah, so that's really good. Um, 
but I I didn't see that in the docs as far as how to do that. But I you know I know I could. Oh yeah, I don't think it's in the docs. But no. I could figure it out. Um, but I appreciate it. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you guys are thinking ahead of uni- uniformity, and uh, that's the new way to do things. Yeah, and it well, it's consistent, and mm. and really, I think dot if we were talking about dot net specifically, which um, I do not focus solely on dot net and C sharp anymore in my life. Mm-hmm. I have a much broader scope. But if we talk about .NET specifically, this progress reporting stream should probably be in .NET standard library yeah. so that we don't actually have to create it. Right. And then we would assume a .NET programmer knows it's there, just like you would know file stream is there or network stream is there right. And, right. or crypto stream or whatever, compression stream. And then you would just wrap it with that and then you would use it. I mean, there is an interesting question here of should there be that that service to push up to Azure as part of .NET, or is it re- it's just an Azure API, like any language, any platform should be able to call it. Um, well, yes, that's true. Um, but at, you know, at the wire, it's HTTP. And so yeah, you're yeah. using some kind of HTTP stack, right? In .NET, mm-hmm. you're using the HTTP client. In other languages, you're using whatever they have. Right. And each one of those may have its own unique way some don't do streaming, for example. Right. Right. Some you have to give it um, a pointer to a buffer and a buffer size, and that's when it's going to upload. If it does mm-hmm. that, then there's no way to do progress reporting. Right. On that right. individual block, right? Because it's trans. It, it just does it without your involvement in any way. Right. But if the language supports streaming, then we would recommend, or what we want to implement ultimately, is a streaming wrapper decorator, and then you get callbacks. Yeah. Very cool. Right. And you would use the same thing for downloading. For too, everything. Right? Just for download stream, yeah. Anything that requires progress to be reported. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, and it's interesting just to think about long-term maintainability where if you have pieces living in .NET, pieces that are Azure API, like what changes where, I guess this is where your whole board comes into play to make sure that that stuff stays in sync. Uh, Definitely. Well, yes, for the .NET part of the ecosystem yeah sure right but we do other languages too which microsoft doesn't own you know like go or rust yeah, for sure. example you know so we just have to track those communities and when they do certain things that might affect us then we figure out how long it should take us before we embrace those things right and and what's the right way to do those things like how do you i, I do like the idea that if i understand some area of azure apis i'll be comfortable with most of them that they should be all be of similar style, similar authentication strategies, you know, similar uh, structures to their APIs. I mean, is that the goal or is that true? So there's a consistency across the services. Like they all right. authenticate the same way. They all do telemetry mm-hmm. or distributed tracing the same way. Then, or they all do optimistic concurrency or item potency the same way. Then we, in the client libraries, we want to have consistency there across languages uh, mm-hmm. And we have a certain set of features that we want available, like cancellation, distributed tracing, telemetry, retry support, um, and so on, authentication. We want, we know we, this is a core feature set, and we know we want those implemented in every language for our right. client libraries. So then we have an architecture that allows us to implement them in a consistent way. So, for example, we have this thing which we call the HTTP pipeline. And each one of those things I just said is a policy that plugs into the pipeline. Right. So there's a retry policy, a distributed tracing policy, mm-hmm. a authentication or credential policy. 
um, unique request ID policy. And customers can actually create their own policies and plug them in. So you customers could do things like a client-side caching policy or a fault injection policy if they wanted to. We don't have those. Someday we might, but right today we don't have them and we don't mm -hmm. ship them. And you just, now depending on the language, maybe you create a structure, maybe you create a callback method, or maybe derive off a base class to create your own implementation of that policy. Um, and then out of the box, again, we provide all the ones I said initially. And then you just create this um, array of these policies is what a pipeline actually is. And when the HTTP request is being constructed, or right after it's constructed, then it walks its way down through the pipeline. So it goes through all of those policies. The last policy is the transport policy, which sends it out over the wire. And I know I, right. I'm very proud to say that uh, Poly was uh, yeah. one of those first sets of policies that you guys implemented. Uh, the the retry policies in Poly. Yeah, the whole right. policy right. architecture is really really nice. It did. I think it has been really nice because we've had other teams come to us and ask us to do things. And we're like, well, our architecture just allows us to plug this extra policy right in. Mm. And now we have the support for this additional thing. That's great. It also allows us to say, well, we have a couple requests for this, but not a lot. So maybe we'll let customers do it and they can plug it in. And then over time, we can decide if we want to add it to what we call Azure Core. That's our core um, infrastructure piece that we have a version of for every language. It's sort of uh, aspect oriented, isn't it? I mean, the code, the, the code that the programmer does to, you know, make a request and execute it doesn't change really. I mean, everything is happening down below. Uh, yes. Yeah. Sure. That's I mean, really nice. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how you guys don't end up being a bottleneck. Like that, there's so much happening at the same time inside of Azure. Like, how do you look at all these APIs? Um, so you mean as part of the stewardship board? You mean as part of the SDK team? Which, where, where are we being the potential bottleneck that you see? I, ju I just think that there's so much surface area in Azure. Oh, and there's I so see. many things happening at, at the same time. Like, it's really an interesting to try and maintain that consistency. What, how do you do that? Yeah, um, that's a great question, actually. So <laughs> very, um, for the longest time, there were actually a handful of us on the board and it mm -hmm. was being very challenging for us to keep up with all of the workload that was coming in. But just recently, we've got a lot more headcount and we have hired a bunch of people on the team. Um, two and a half years ago, just to give you a point of reference, the team was started with me and Peter Marco. It was just the two of us. Mm -hmm. We're now over 150 people. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so the team has really grown quite substantially and we're still continuing to grow. So we have a lot more people on the stewardship board now. That's cool. And that allows us, I mean, the other problem too is when I go on vacation, which I just came back last week, um, you know, a lot of stuff came to a standstill. Uh -oh. um, yeah. And the, the breaking change board in particular, it's actually just me and one other person. And they always seem to be a fire that needs to be put out. So right. usually when I'm on vacation, I still have to take the odd phone call or do email here and there. I can't deal with the, the fire. But yeah, I guess what what's the conversation about a breaking change? Like, how, you know, is it is there really an outcome that says, hey, we're not going to make this change? Yeah. Yeah. And there, there was a big one yesterday. I probably shouldn't say the team or what they were proposing. Yeah, that's fair. But I shot it down completely. And I said, you just can't do this. 
There was another team, this was when I was on vacation, where there was a legal issue that was coming up. Wow. And um, somebody thought that we were using something that we didn't have the rights to use. And okay. rather than fully fighting it, we decided we were just going to stop using that thing. And um, But they were going to charge us money for every day we continued to use it as like a fine. Hmm. So we had to, so we're going to break customers on that immediately. Um, Right. That's very, very rare. In fact, this is the only time that I'm aware in the time I've been doing this is the only time we've made a decision that we're going to break you immediately. Um, Just so customers feel comfortable. This is on a service that's not used by most people. And we kind of have a workaround where it's not exactly what it is, but it'll mostly work exactly the way you want Mm. it to. So right. we're just getting rid of this extra piece that we don't want to, we may not have the rights to use. Um, anyway, um, but also I'll say, so our normal breaking change policy is that if a team wants to break customers for whatever reason, then typically they are allowed to do that, but we give customers three years notice and three years of time for them to upgrade their code. That's our wow. formal policy. That's a lot. So that's like the full long uh, you, you know, long uh, license version for .NET of duration. Yeah. Wow. Yes. So if it's a secure security or compliance related thing, then it's only one year's notice. Okay. We don't want customers to, you know, be exposed to some security breach for three years. Right. Even one year, some people debate that's too long too. But we want to give people some time. Yeah, the, the alternative is simply breaking their software, and that's not acceptable right, either. Right, So those are our formal policies. Uh, this legal thing happened to be a, like a one-day thing, which, which has never come up before. I don't know if yeah. it'll ever come up again. Hopefully not. Well, it, it is an interesting aspect of, of developing software at this scale. It's like the origins of code, libraries being used, and so forth. Like that's a, that's a big challenge. We talked about this with Rocky not that right. long ago about, using open source and enterprise software and just this, do you know where your code came from? Do you know where that open source, who made that open source library? Where did that code come from? Like those things matter, but I'm abundantly aware that Microsoft is very diligent about any code they introduce and and checking sources. Yeah, very much so. There's always legal that gets involved to read over the licensing agreements um, Mm -hmm. for any other third party stuff that we consume. And now we enter into agreements with companies that they have to adhere to our breaking change policies, too. Right. So I know the Azure data factory people, they have a lot of third party plugin components and they'll have agreements with the people who make those third party plugins that they have to agree to our breaking change policies of three years or one year so that we can ensure that to the customers of Azure data factory. Absolutely. And gentlemen, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Hey, Carl here. You know, there's something new from our friends at Text Control. TX Text Control supports the integration of legally binding electronic document signatures into your ASP.NET Core web applications. Simply use Microsoft Word documents, prepare them using the Text Control online editor, and request signatures from signers. It works just like well-known e-sign services, but runs on-premises in your infrastructure without sending and storing documents somewhere else. To showcase typical workflows and the text control electronic signature technology, they published a fully functional demo that can be used to create and request signatures, sign documents, 
and to validate executed PDF files. See the demo at esign.textcontrol.com. That's esign.textcontrol.com. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Elastic. Elastic enables the world's leading organizations to put their data to work using the power of search. Whether it's connecting people in teams with content that matters, keeping applications and infrastructure online, or protecting entire digital ecosystems, Elastic's search platform is able to surface relevant results with speed and at scale. Learn how you can get started with Elastic's search platform for free at elastic.co slash dotnet rocks. That's elastic.co slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey. And we're talking to Jeff Richter about this role, extraordinary role that you're in to help uh, sort of unify APIs and to to try and uh, advocate for us out in the field here to not get surprised when changes happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love what I do. It has enormous reach, and I think it's very impactful. And Sure. Yeah, make a, makes a makes a huge difference without a doubt. And it's one of those subtleties I don't think a lot of people think about. You know, you're working in your little area in Azure as a developer, and of course those things are consistent, but just this idea that that, that consistency spreads across a lot more API service than you realize. Oh, yes. I mean, the Azure org is, I don't know, several thousand engineers all writing code every day. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and all going in different directions. So, you know, that whole, are you thinking about the impacts of your changes? Like, you can't just change stuff casually. Not that I've ever thought they really did. They were always pretty careful, but it's it's just an even larger scale now. I mean, it's, you know, some yes, some no. Um, a lot of teams, you know, as since Azure and Microsoft's been growing, we get a lot of students, you know, fresh out of school who don't have as much programming experience. Their code is usually mm-hmm. re- reviewed by somebody more senior, yeah. but they don't always have like the discipline or the forethought of how do I make this code sustainable in the long term? Right. Another thing that's, I think, common at Microsoft and maybe and a lot of companies too, but probably less so at like Apple, is that Microsoft, I've noticed in all my years there, have tend to add a lot of features kind of proactively, right? We think a customer will like this. So let's go and implement mm-hmm. it. Right. Um, <laughs> and what a lot of people don't understand is that the cost of implementing a feature is cheap compared to documenting it, testing it, customer support for it, it. Um, mm-hmm. blog posts for it. Um, you know, the list goes on and on, right? Um, videos that are created, presentations at conferences that get recorded, that people watch later, but then you've changed how the API works. So now it doesn't match anymore. Sample code. So the actual implementation is like 1% and 99% is this other thing. I think there must be an institutionally implemented response for every program manager at Microsoft when confronted with a, an idea for a, a feature or a change. The answer is, and why would you ever want to do that? <laughs> I swear to God, every time I, I talk to somebody, you know, they need that's yeah. the first thing they want to hear is the use case. Yeah, well, certainly that's true. We're, so we're trying to change the culture a bit to say, let's just ship the minimal viable product, get feedback on it. And then let's slowly iterate over time. Yeah. And by slowly, you know, some of these services update once a month. 
So it's not like the Windows yeah. things where it was once every three years, right? right? It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, and I, I think that's a very cool aspect, certainly watching .NET in GitHub where folks talk about an issue or, you know, an implementation detail and within a, a month or two, it's running in a preview build. Yeah. Like the number of times I see that message, like, I can't believe that I'm already playing with this. We just talked about it a few weeks ago. But, you know, the teams are really responsive. And speaking of Windows, I hear Windows 11 is going to run Android apps. What? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. why would you ever want to do that? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, that's, you know, it harkens back to the days where, if you remember OS 2, when OS 2 was trying sure. to, you know, IBM was trying to re redo that. And it was in the time that Windows 95 was out. I can't remember when it was, but, but they're, they were bragging about being able to run Windows 3.0 apps. Oh, that's right. Windows 3.1 was out and mm -hmm. they, they had just implemented, you know, Windows 3.0 apps. And so everybody was like, yawn. <laughs> it was magic yeah. back in the day. It's a long time yeah. ago now. Holy man. Wow. Android on Windows. Yeah. 1980s it's a that's but yeah I, I mean it's interesting to see how much linux kernel code is running in windows now i mean in the end android's running on linux so if they're really emulating that they're running some linux kernel inside of windows again well i'm, I'm guessing it's on top of the windows subsystem for yeah, linux, for linux, linux subsystem yeah, from windows whatever it's called yeah <laughs> whatever that is yeah, it's it is a, a fascinating time, you know. Some uh, that, that idea came around again. It's like, what if the kernel was just Linux? What if Windows was actually the GUI that Linux always wanted? Yeah. Yes. Well, that I don't foresee that ever happening. It seems unlikely. I, yeah. I kind of thought that was going to happen with Windows Phone. You know that they were going to adopt Android as the base platform and keep that wonderful user interface that that we enjoyed for a few years. Um, because I still, to this day, think that that's the best mobile UI I've ever used. And I wish I had it now. With the tiles? Yeah, the tiles yeah, and the contact-centric stuff. Yeah, but now with Windows 11, all the tiles are gone. It seems like they didn't... <laughs> They weren't appreciated by most people. Only you, Carl. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I, I didn't see, I haven't seen the preview of uh, Windows 11 yet. I just saw a cursory article on my phone until somebody interrupted me yeah. and then I had to put it down. Well, and they messed with the UI again. You know, it's, it's interesting to see. I mean, I'll certainly take it out for a spin. I think we all will. But uh, it is interesting to see what the impact, uh, you know, what they're doing there. Didn't they tell us that Win 10 was like the last Windows? I do seem to remember that, but not true, apparently. <laughs> apparently not. You know, they lied. <laughs> well, or they oh, learned. How about I don't that? care what you know. They I don't care what the number is. Yeah, well, they you know started out with putting out qu major quarterly revisions of Windows, and believe me, on the IT side, that got old fast. <laughs> But, you know, mo most IT shops are not set up for that many updates to Windows. They just, they, they just dropped behind. It's like, I love that you're making all this stuff. We're just not going to use it. Thanks. Well, uh, not exactly Windows memory management anymore. That's for I sure. Got a, I got a question for you, Jeff. And I think I may have asked you this one way back in 2008 also. But, um, you know, 
a particular challenge that was a little bit surreal, you know, because you obviously have these scenarios that come up, they get dropped in your lap, fix this, and here's why. And, you know, something that left you scratching your head, maybe. Oh, you're asking me what has done that? Yeah. I'm asking you to recall. Oh, let's see. Um, I mean, there's been many challenges, certainly, that I've faced in my life. Um, (laughs) Technical and (laughs) non-technical, of course. Um, I mean, one that is kind of fresh for me is uh, there was um, in the SDKs, the Azure SDKs, uh, we're recommending that customers use managed identity for doing authentication to the Azure services. Manage identity gives you back a token and a refresh token, and the refresh token requires that you refresh it periodically. So we, you might have a, a client, like a blob client object, and you might have 100 threads that are using that blob client object simultaneously. And if they're all using it at the same time, and it comes time to refresh the token, then what should we do? So... Should we take a lock and one of the threads that owns the lock then goes and refreshes the token and all the other 99 threads, they just stop running? That doesn't feel good to me, right? Plus, you don't generally want to hold a lock over an IO operation, which is refreshing of the token because maybe the service never replies. So now all 100 threads are blocked indefinitely. So that doesn't feel good. Um, do we want all 100 threads to try to refresh the same token? That seems wasteful mm-hmm. and time-consuming. So um, we tried to look at a high-scalable way that we could write an algorithm to do this. Um, and when I say we, this was, was actually me. So, okay, the royal um, we. I thought about it. <laughs> yeah, I thought about it for a couple of days. And then one night I'm laying in bed trying to go to sleep. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, I think I have an idea. And I pull my Surface Pro out. I love it. And I go into a bonus room, and I sit down. And in three hours, I come up with this solution using condition variables Hmm. so that there's a time window. So let's say three minutes before the token expires, when one thread detects that, it will go and make the request. The other threads will continue to use the current token, which hasn't expired yet. When it, um, then hopefully the first thread will get the new token back, we'll just ad- update it atomically, and everything just keeps running. So one thread gets a little hiccup, the other nine keep running at full speed. And then if it's updated, then everybody keeps running. Um, if for some reason the token does completely expire, then the other ones do stop because we don't want to make failed network requests with a token we know is expired. Right. So... Anyway, I worked on this algorithm for a while, and we're um, and now we've encoded that up in all the different languages, and now our SDK uses that algorithm. That is so cool. Cool. I, yeah. I've, Except I've, C, we don't have condition variables in C, so it's not done there. <laughs> I've done that many times. Been laying in bed, you know, or or just like the in a dream, it came to me in the middle of the night, and for some reason, my brain just kept locking on that solution. And in the morning, you're just like ah. That's so cool. Yeah, I get a lot of that. Shower also seems to be good. Yeah. So, yeah. Somehow. <laughs> I get, seem to get good ideas there, too. Yeah, I'm a big believer in letting stuff burn in the back of your yep. brain for a while. Right? It's like, I, I, ramming my way straight on this is not happy. I'm just going to let it cook. And uh, and sure enough, stuff Yeah, another up. pot of coffee isn't always the right solution. 
<laughs> no. But the number of times I was like, this is not working tonight. I'm going to bed. And and hit the bed and had the wife roll over and go, you are vibrating. I don't know what the <laughs> hell's going on in your head, but go deal with it. And just laying down for a minute was enough to go, oh, yeah, of course. And off you go. Yeah. 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 It's funny how we how we solve problems like that. Yeah. Sometimes away from the problem for a while, go on vacation or something. Yeah. Take yeah, an hour. Right? Leave it and then, yeah. See a movie, do something and then it come back to it. Are you at a place where you're like maintaining templates for APIs that are being built in the organization around stuff like the authentication, logging and so forth? Just like so it's like, here's table stakes. You have to have all these things. Go do them. Oh, definitely. We have um, it's all public. The Azure SDK team has all these uh, guidelines. We have a guideline for each language, but there's a core set of guidelines that all languages must follow. Yeah. And those are the things like you must support cancellation. You must support distributed tracing. You have to have telemetry. You got to have retry support. So um, we've coded those all up. And then in different languages, we code up for a specific language. Here's how we're going to expose this functionality. So like in C Sharp, Mm -hmm. there will be a blob client class. The constructor will take the URL to the endpoint. It will take the credentials and it will take some other configuration options, like how many retries, how much time between retries. That's the most common one. There's some like logging is also in there too. Um, And then in .NET, every method has to have a cancellation token as the last parameter. Right. In Go, every function has to have a context as the first parameter, which you use in Go to do cancellation. So, you know, what is the type and which parameter it is may vary, but the concept is there in all these languages. Right. You know, in .NET, you have inheritance. In Go, you don't have inheritance. So that changes some things. Some languages have interfaces. Some don't. Some have enums. Some do not have enums. Right. So, um, so we have guidelines that are specific for each language. Our CFP yeah, I'm, I'm on the I'm on GitHub looking at the Azure SDK entries, and yeah, you've got design guidelines for a host of languages, some of which come from Microsoft and some of which don't. Yeah, uh, but it's also interesting to think agnostically, like how do I approach these services that the clients are being built over, so that it doesn't matter whether they have inheritance or don't. You know that that it's going to work for everyone. It's very, I think it's very easy when you're language centric to build APIs that really only work for that language. It's hard to use them in any other way. Yeah, so our team has an architecture board of which Mm -hmm. I'm a member, and we have members who specialize in different languages. So I'm specifically the architect for C, which is mostly for embedded devices, Mm -hmm. C++, which is wildly different than C, and Mm -hmm. Go. Um, We have other architects who do Python, JavaScript, C Sharp, Java, those are those are our core main languages. Right. Uh, we also have iOS and Android support as well. So we have uh, we have an architecture board meeting set up on the calendar four days a week from two to four. We don't do it on Friday today. Um, and then in those architect board meetings, we um, all the architect board members show up from all, representing all the languages. And then we review API. So the storage team might come to us and say, we've added this new API for blobs. Um, here's what it looks like in C Sharp. 
And then we'll say, okay, well, then that's what it should, it should look the equivalent in Java or the equivalent in Python or the equivalent in whatever. And sometimes right. we debate them and say, well, this isn't actually following our guidelines. You should change the order of these parameters where this structure should be a class or this should be an interface mm-hmm. or, you know, we debate those different things. Yeah, and, I, and I appreciate you have architects from each of those languages. So they're advocating for, is this going to be reasonable for a, a programmer in this language yes, to work with it? exactly right. So that allows us to have consistency. Then we produce those guidelines. And then sometimes new things show up. How should, like, we didn't do distributed tracing initially. And then people came to us and said, it would be really nice if we had distributed tracing support in the client libraries. So then we had a few architecture board meetings where we weren't doing API reviews, but we were discussing, okay, do we want to do distributed tracing or not? If we do, what aspect of it do we want to do? Um, and what things do we want to support? How should we plug it into the system, which ultimately ended up being a policy that goes in the pipeline? That's where a lot of things end up going. Um, so the, we have those kinds of conversations. And then once we come to agreement on those, and it might take a few Archboard meetings to do it, then sure. we, if it's core functionality – then our team's also cre- re- responsible for creating an Azure core component for each of the languages. And if it's a core functionality, we will put it in there. All the client libraries depend on the Azure core for that same language. And so it ends up, so if we do distributed tracing in Azure core, all client libraries in that language now have distributed tracing support. And it works the exact same way. It has the same options, the same parameters. It's the exact same thing across all the different Azure services within that language. And um, it's it's been a great way to work. I think uh, I think it's really been a great thing for customers. I think it's really been great for the teams at Microsoft because they take a dependency on Azure Core and we do most of the heavy lifting for them. They do the service <laughs> specific things. We do all yeah. the infrastructure stuff. Cool, right? Um, when new infrastructure gets added, we put it in and then everybody gets it for free. You know, they don't have anything to do. It just shows up magically. So it's been yeah. it's a really nice way to work. And it's it's funny how it took maybe 13, 15 years for Microsoft to arrive at this model. But it's working particularly well. And we think it works really well for customers, too. Yeah. Well, and I think it's one of those things that a lot of folks just don't know about, the amount of effort it goes into to make sure your language runs well against everything in Azure. Yes. Another thing we were guilty of in the past is our Python mm-hmm. library. We would get feedback. The Python library looks a lot like it was created by a C-sharp developer. <laughs> and it was. Uh, huh. <laughs> such a thing have happened. Yes. So uh, with our team, we our team is divided up by language. And the engineers who work in that language are experts in that language. Right. Right. Whereas when the service teams did their own client libraries, almost all the services are written in C sharp. Right. And so when they would make, they would make a C sharp client library first, of course. And then when customers said, well, I use Java or I use Python, then we would have to grab a C sharp developer because that's all we had and say, here you go, go make the Python version of this, figure it out. Uh, yeah. Um, we don't work that way anymore. Now we have dedicated teams with experts in that language working on the stuff. So the Python thing really looks like it's written by a Python developer for Python developers. 
Hey, Jeff, I notice uh, nobody else can see this because this is an audio podcast, but you've got a very colorful Stratocaster hanging up behind you, Fender Strat guitar, and some interesting pictures, and I can barely make out some celebrities in those pictures. Can you, do you mind telling us about this collection? Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, So the guitar, um, I go on a progressive rock cruise almost every year. And um, it's called Cruise to the Edge. Now, are you playing progressive rock or are you just a fan? I'm just a fan. Um, They have the famous bands on the ship. Okay. So um, it was, so it's called Cruise to the Edge. And it's, uh, the headliner has been Yes, based on their Close to the Edge album. Yeah, right. So one year, if I found, you know, recommended or referred a friend to go on the cruise, then the members of Yes would sign a guitar and they would give it to the person who did the referral. Wow. So that's how I ended up with this guitar and it is signed by all the members of Yes. Wow. Um, And so I never play it. I don't touch it because I don't want to ruin it. But it just (laughs) sits there. Um, The other pictures on my wall is uh, me and famous, I mean, famous-ish, Musicians, you know, as famous as prog rock musicians can well, be. Man, some of them are uh, the most famous of all, aren't they? I mean, Neil Peart and yeah. Rush and yeah. Neil won't take a picture, and of course he's late; yeah. he's passed away now. Yeah. So, but I do have one with Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson from Rush over here in the corner. Wow! And I have Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Chick Corea, who died recently, yeah. and members of King Crimson, members of Yes. Uh, the bottom row is me and Bill Gates, me and Steve Ballmer, and I have me and Penn and Teller. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You're missing the Satya photo. Say again? You're missing the Satya photo? If you've got Bill and Steve, you kind of need Satya to round out that. Oh, yeah, the Satya photo. Yeah, I've never met him in person, so it hasn't happened. Oh, wow. Yes. He is an interesting character. No two ways about it. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for him now. Um, he's really yeah. changed the culture of the company a lot. He really has. And, uh, Truly. It's more in line with my personal values of like one Microsoft, everybody helping each other. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, here I'll, I'll share with you a story from years gone by where two teams at Microsoft wouldn't talk to each other. So uh, I was doing stuff for... I was consulting on in DevDiv, and I was doing work for the Spy++ program yeah. that ships with Visual Studio. In fact, if you open the About box for that, my name is still listed in the About box for that, is contributing to it. Isn't like Mike Amundsen, one of the developers of that as well? I buy Spy. Um, not, not I buy Spy. This is Spy++. Oh, okay. It, it watches the window messages that are coming into a window. Okay, I'm sorry. I would imagine practically no one uses it today. But way back when, <laughs> it was, it was mm-hmm. a pretty popular tool, okay. and a lot of people used it. So there's this thing in Windows called a registered window message where you register a string and you get back this integer. And it's this integer that comes through is the window message. And the Spy++ team, we wanted to be able to find these registered window messages, and we wanted to display the string in the user interface, mm-hmm. not the number to make it you know, easier for people to see this and work with it. Well, there was no documented function in Windows that where you could pass it the number and it would give you back the string equivalent. Mm. And so the Spy++ team at Microsoft didn't know how to make this work. 
Um, because I had done so much work with Windows, I knew a lot of people on the Windows team. So I went to the people at Microsoft and I said, if you pay me $10,000, I will go and I will figure out how to do this. And so we wrote up a contract and I signed the contract. And then I went to a friend of mine at Windows and I said, any idea how to do And he said, not documented, <laughs> but if you call get clipboard format name and you pass in that number, we'll give you back the strength. Oh, man. <laughs> That's the <laughs> fastest 10 grand you ever made. <laughs> it is. So then I waited a week before I submitted the result. Yeah, right? Right. You don't want to be too fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boy, this was a tough week, but here you go. That was a long time ago. That's awesome. Um, and the culture at Microsoft um, wouldn't be like that today. Yeah. Today, no. we're encouraged to all work together as one Microsoft and people talk. But back then, that was my canonical example of the teams kind of competing with each other and not feeling comfortable working together. I was thinking about this, Richard, um, that if there's one person without whose work the current uh, state of Microsoft would still be Windows-centric, who would that be? Oh, one one person? person who made critical contributions to the current state of Microsoft. Oh, there's so many people. Yeah, but there's one so in particular. In all that. I'm like, thinking Miguel think? de Acasa. Well, you know, it's hard to argue with that because especially when you think about sort of the dark days of right. .NET, you know, I remember when when Anders was moving on to what would ultimately become TypeScript. Everybody was worried about, well, what does that mean for C Sharp? At, and at the same time that you were wondering about that, Miguel was making C Sharp that ran for iOS yeah. and Android. So I think on the show, we even said, I think Miguel Diacaz is now the current, like, soul of C Sharp. Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about Mono, on which all of this mm -hmm. stuff was based, Xamarin, and then, you know, the open source and, and cross-platform versions of .NET, uh, and in inviting Sacha, you know, who it to, he could now execute his vision. I think that without that, Mono. Certainly Mono spoke to doing cross-platform .NET, but .NET Core has no Mono. No, I know that now, but... Yeah. All right. So anyway, he's my Microsoft superstar. Even though he's only lately come That's to true. But he brought all his stuff with him. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, he, you know, he liked the language before it was yeah. shipping, right? He read the ECMA specifications yeah. in 2000. He, he announced Mono in 2001. And I remember having him as a guest on .NET Rocks, and it was being co-served, uh, the podcast was being co-served the files, the MP3 files on MSDN. And suspiciously, that episode was missing. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't like him on back MSDN, then. Oddly enough. Yeah. Well, it's certainly part of the book, the conversations I had with him. There was a period there where the Microsoft guys were all suspicious of him because he was a yeah. Linux guy. And the Linux guys were all suspicious of him because he was using right. Microsoft. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lose-lose. <laughs> yeah, it was hard to be, hard to be Miguel. Mm -hmm. I know that, that, might, that might be a book title all by itself, hard to, hard be, hard Miguel. to be Miguel. Well, Jeff, what's in your <laughs> inbox? What's next for you? Oh, well, I'm, I'm spending the bulk of the day reviewing the – we're turning the HTTP guidelines into an actual document. I already had slides and videos on that. Um, in fact – I'll send you some links that you can post for people 
to stuff that I have videos on that people can watch. Um, so we're doing that um, later today. We meet with the Embedded Seed team to talk about how our SDK is being used by customers and get any feedback there, any enhancements they would like us to make to the core functionality of that. Um, we just shipped our C++ SDK and we're going to be shipping the Go stuff in GA very soon. So these are things we're fine tuning some of the API designs on and the guidelines for those things. Um, and then always reviewing breaking changes right? and reviewing new services that are coming out that I, I can't speak to, of course. Yeah, but, sure. You know, we announce them at Ignite and Build typically. So usually right before then, like a month or two before then, there's a mad rush to review the APIs and make changes before we put it in customers' hands. Sounds good. Well, we'll we'll keep in touch with you a little yeah. more frequently from now on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 13 years between shows, a bit long. long. A bit long. You think you'll be doing this another 13 years from now? Oh, my uh, goodness. Who knows? When we're in our late 60s? <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Uh, well, if you God, are, yes. I'll be back. All right. Awesome. <laughs> okay. You, pro you promise. Before then, yes. That's a deal. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks again. All right, thank you, guys. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, listener, for listening today. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a